0: Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code Summer at OseaMalibu.com. That's O S E A Malibu.com code Summer.
1: Today, Samuel Pepys is chiefly famous as a great writer. He kept his voluminous, intimate, detailed diaries from 1660 to 1669, and they give us insights into Restoration London like nothing else. His journal is a fascinating source on his society, but not just about his own life, but the lives of the people around him whose experiences went otherwise unrecorded. But Pepys was also a great reader. In a lovely line, he wrote of how he desired to read, above almost everything else, my eyes which would be reading. Through his love of books, we can learn about how people read in the 17th century. His diary, his surviving papers, and his huge extant library can tell us about reading habits, literacy, and the circulation of books and ideas. You may never have thought that you needed to know this but I promise you, it is revelatory and really helps us see the realities of life in the past in a new way. And the person who has done the work to bring those revelations to us is Dr. Kate Loveman, Associate Professor in English Literature at the University of Leicester. She has edited and annotated Pepys's Diary for Every Man and her monograph, Samuel Pepys and His Books, Reading, Reading, News Gathering and Sociability 1660 to 1703 was published by Oxford University Press in 2015. Dr. Loven, thank you so much for joining me to talk about your book. It's really interesting way into thinking about a character we know well and behaviours that we might not have thought about that much in the past. I wonder if we can start by some sort of introductory material. Perhaps you would remind listeners or give them a bit of a broad overview of
2: Pepys' life, who Samuel Pepys was, when he was born, what he did. Um, Sure. Well, Pepys is most famous for keeping a diary between 1660 and 1669, but he actually left behind him a whole host of papers that document a very active life. So he'd been born in 1633 and he was the son of a tailor, so not tremendously well off, but he got himself a scholarship to Cambridge. And after that, he was working for one of his cousins, Sir Edward Montague, who on the restoration of Charles II became the Earl of Sandwich. So Pepys' career kind of took off with the restoration because his cousin got him a job as clerk of the Acts to the Navy Board. And the Navy Board was responsible for supplying and equipping the fleet. This meant that Pepys started to acquire influence, he started to acquire money, and he was tremendously diligent in his job. So he soon became the person to go to for that area of the Navy. So his diary, which he starts in 1660, is documenting that social rise and all the delights of Restoration London that he's encountering at that time. In 1669, he stops his diary because he fears he's going blind. But his very impressive rise in the Navy continues. He becomes a secretary for the Admiralty Commission and then secretary to the king in his role in the Admiralty. There's a bit of a blip between those two when he's arrested and taken to the Tower for treason. But he gets out and he would have been most famous to people before his diary was known as a naval administrator. So he continued in that role. He then retired and continued to collect a lot of books, which is something that we see him doing in his diary. And he left those books with the diary behind him to his old college, Magdalen, in Cambridge. And... Then a good while later, so he died in 1703, his diary was first published in 1825 after it had been transcribed from shorthand. So it was not an easy read. It took a while for people to realise how important it was. And it also took a while for the diary to be published in full. It hasn't been available to us until the late 20th century in an edition that was 11 volumes long, which just tells you how much of a busy life he had. Tell us a bit about what's in that diary
1: and your thoughts on the question of why he wrote it.
2: So his diary is really unusual because it is so tremendously detailed. A lot of people in the 17th century who do keep diaries might note, for example, things to do with their health or religion. Pepys will take us on his daily round. So he'll tell us who he talked to in the alehouse. He'll tell us about encountering servants He tells us about the latest gossip, which, as he becomes more powerful and influential, includes the latest gossip from court. So there is scandalous material of various kinds. He tells us about his fights with his wife, his feuds with his neighbours, who are also his colleagues. So it's got a tremendous amount of detail, both about major events like the Great Fire of London and the Plague, but also about people's day-to-day lives. Now, as to why he kept it, that's something that nobody has or is ever really going to settle. He's clearly keeping it for a number of reasons. He's starting it at a point where the country is in political turmoil. He starts it on the first day of a new decade, 1st of January 1660. And he also tells us at various points that he's keeping it for sort of his own protection in some ways, that he's noting down something because he wants to be able to remember it in case somebody accuses him of something later on. I'm very persuaded by the idea that has been put forward that this is one of pepys 's ways of tracking social status. And so we see him, Mark Dawson sort of makes this argument that we see him thinking about what other people think of him. And quite a lot of the material in the diary can be explained in that kind of way. But he's also putting in there... Things like sexual encounters that people do not normally describe and that it's unlikely that when he was writing them, he was expecting would ever be published.
1: <laughs> yes, I have to say that on reading your book, the one thing that's really going to stick with me, hopefully it will be loads of things that stick with me, but certainly one of the things that's going to stick with me is his reading of L'Ecole des Filles, but maybe we can come to that later. There are two idiosyncrasies that you point out. One, I suppose, is common to all diaries, but is such an important point, which is that it's not a record of what he did, what he thought was worthy of record. And I'm quoting you there. But the other thing, and I hadn't known this at all before I read your book, is that he was chiefly doing this as prompted by his record of expenditure. And I wondered how that relationship between his
2: spending and the diary skews what we have in it. Yeah, it certainly seems that he started out, so to sort of give a bit of context, Pepys's diary, as we've got it today, has been shown to be the result of having gone through a succession of note-keeping activities. So one of the things that survives in certain parts of the diary is the kind of original spine of this diary, which was his record of what he spent as he went around London. And he seems to have then built on that with notes and got more and more expansive. So... Certainly, if I start the diary, it is much clearer that that is what is going on. You can see he's kind of learning his craft, such as it were. And as it goes on, he gets more and more copious. I think while it's really helpful to be mindful of what lies behind this record, certainly by the time he gets partway through the diary, it's no longer the case that we sort of have to be worried about things being left out because they in the financial expenses, because he's kind of slightly moved on from that way of thinking. He no longer needs to catalogue his financial expenses in quite the same way, because he's got more money. So he's kind of freer to write about what he wants, and that old method of keeping a record of what he's doing is, in terms of bits of expenses around London is clearly still helping him a bit. It makes it more likely that some things will end up in the diary if they involve spending money. I'm not sure to what extent it means things are less likely to make it in there if they don't involve spending money. If they were interesting or fun or remarkable, they still stand a good chance of getting in there.
1: Right, so they're only unlikely to be there if they are mundane and commonplace and something that's happening habitually,
2: perhaps. I've been trying to think more lately about what doesn't get into the diary, and that's the kind of thinking that you have to do by recognising when Peeps is commenting on something because it's unusual. So sometimes he'll say, I didn't read prayers to the family today because I was drunk. Having never mentioned that he was reading them regularly beforehand, but clearly he had been reading you know, every Sunday there had been prayers. It's just that that didn't make it in because it was normal. So if you look out for those kinds of comments in the diary about what is unusual, or you know sometimes a servant is hired and we hear about the details of their hiring because it's unusual, that tells you about what is probably going on behind the scenes that we're not getting written down because it's so normal and boring to him.
1: Yes, I had an equivalent situation. Some of my work has drawn on consistory records from France in the 16th and 17th centuries which happened against the backdrop of the French wars of religion. And one of the things the records never mention is war, (laughs) except occasionally you'll get a soldier popping up somewhere or whatever. And, And I had to conclude it was just because it was ubiquitous. Now, we're going to be thinking about literacy and chiefly about the history of reading, and obviously, Pepys was self-evidently illiterate. But how common was literacy in this period? And I know I'm asking a difficult question. So can we talk about some of
2: the complexities
1: of measuring literacy in the 17th century as well?
2: Yeah, so there's been some really good work and continues to be really good work done on trying to measure literacy. So one of the things that has emerged and continues to affect how people think about this is that reading and writing were taught as separate skills. So you learned to read first And then maybe you learned to write and this means that literacy as in the ability to read particularly printed texts was probably much higher than we would get by measuring what is called signature literacy that is people's ability to sign on documents so particularly for women who might be making a mark on a document that is no indication that they could not read And there's been some very interesting work done lately that suggests that if they were initialing documents, that probably indicates a a pretty high level of ability to read or that they continued to sort of acquire reading skills. So when I was writing about Peeps, I was kind of on the lookout for information that might help us think about this kind of problem. And one of the things that came, sort of began to emerge was that the female servants in Peeps's household seemed to be pretty functionally literate. The references to one of them owning a book, they're being encouraged to read prayers at various points, and there's one bit where Peeps gets very cross because the servants have brought in a meal that's been taken out to the cook and cooked in the cook's dishes so that the cook would be at the service down the road, and this meal has been brought back in in the same dishes that the cook has supplied. And this is a tremendous social faux pas, apparently. And it's obvious, says Peeps, that these are the cook's dishes because they had the cook's initials on them. So that kind of everyday experience means that, you know, if you're the cook, first of all, it's worthwhile writing your initials and people can understand that, at least on the level of a mark. But also that if you're a servant, there are certain advantages in being able to recognise that that mark there is somebody's initials. And that that's going to look obvious, you know, this kind of basic literacy that you might begin to pick up in ways that aren't to do with things written in paper. So, yeah, it was kind of aspects of literacy coming across in Peep's diary that I hadn't really had to think about before. And that was really interesting to me. And besides illiteracy
1: or levels of literacy, and it clearly is a spectrum rather than a binary, what were
2: the obstacles to reading? Right. So, apart from that, you needed somebody to help you learn to read, and that could cost money. The light, lighting was difficult, so quite a lot of reading seems to have gone on by the fire or using tapers or candles, and those would have cost money. So, we find in people who've often written their memoirs, having had a poor childhood, that this was a problem for them. That there's also, it costs money to buy even very cheap works, so you need to borrow them, or maybe another form of reading is to hear somebody read aloud. So quite a lot of people who wouldn't have been reading themselves regularly might nonetheless have had access to some up-to-date and interesting material because they heard other people read it. And servants seem to be borrowing books quite a bit from not just Peeps, but uh, Robert Hooke, uh, an acquaintance of Peeps. His, one of his servants borrows one of his playbooks because it's a fashionable playbook. So presumably she's keeping her finger on the literary pulse as much as she can. And I suppose there were also concerns about
1: whether reading was a moral activity or somehow indulgent. Is that right? Were there forms of reading that were
2: considered immoral or a waste of time? Yeah, I mean, Pepys sort of demonstrates this and he has quite a lot of disposable income to throw away. So you learn to read so you can read the Bible to yourself if you're a Protestant, And it is a good thing to spend some of your time reading religious works. But there's a sort of the counterweight to that is that Pepys, at least, can get a bit uneasy about spending his time reading romances or various forms of light literature. And there is a kind of sense that this is a waste of money and it's a waste of time. Even He doesn't really seem to think it's going to corrupt him, but he's certainly worried about time being better spent. On other forms of reading or other forms of activity so if we kind of think that was probably going on even more strongly with people who were more strongly religious or had less money and therefore more of a a waste for them to spend it you can imagine that that would have probably been quite a strong counterweight to spending of time and money reading quite a wide range of the material that was being published at the time. planes spacesuits condoms coffee
0: plastic surgery warships over on the patented podcast by history hit we bring you the fascinating stories of history's most impactful inventions and the people who claim these ideas as their own we uncover
2: exceptional stories behind everyday objects we managed to put two men on the moon before we put wheels on suitcases unpack invention myths
1: so the prince's widow immediately becomes certain thomas edison stole her husband's invention and her husband disappeared around the same time can only have been eliminated by thomas edison who at the time is arguably
0: the most famous person in the west and look backwards to understand technologies that are still in progress
2: you know when people turn around to me and say oh why would you live on to live forever life's rubbish i just think that's a bit sad i think it's a worthwhile thing to do and the thing that really makes it worthwhile is the fact that you could make it go on forever So subscribe to Patented from History Hit on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to catch new episodes every Wednesday and Sunday.
0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies... From stitching the Star-Spangled Banner to striking gold in California to shooting for the moon with Apollo, we've got you covered. Catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: You mentioned that people might... I hear books read out loud. What else can we learn from Pepys' diary about, well, how he read himself or how his household or, or Restoration London is more
2: generally read as as a practice? So bearing in mind that we can kind of safely assume that Pepys is, on the one hand, really atypical, you know, most people were not rich gentlemen, but also he kind of wants to always fit in or be at the cutting edge of fitting in. So he's quite a good index to what people of his social standing or the social standing he wants to be in a doing. And he tells us a bit about what other people are doing. So what can we learn? Well, we learn, for example, as I mentioned, that prayers are being read and there is some encouragement from householders who are doing their job to keep their servants literate, or to get them literate in the first place in households such as Peeps'. We hear about ballads being read at events and sung at events and kind of carted around in people's pockets about people lending each other books, so the women in Pepys' circles are lending each other biographies and plays and romances and that kind of thing. There's a kind of wealth of information in Pepys' diary. He is reading in some fairly unusual circumstances, but I think probably much more usual then. So, for example, he will read while he's walking. He regards that as a normal thing to do. He'll take a book out and walk in the fields. And from Various kinds of other, including medical books, are suggesting that this is actually quite a good thing to do. You know, don't shut yourself up and read in your dark room. It could be really bad for your health. Go out and walk while reading the book. So people, I think, must have been navigating some uh, hazards. <laughs> in that. But uh, evidently people thought it was worthwhile. Having once fallen over whilst walking, reading, albeit
1: in high heels, I realised that that could be a problem. But that's such an interesting idea that there are different places where people are doing this. And there are different ways of reading then. So we've got experiences that are quite solitary, but also some that are very
2: much communal activities. Yes, I think a lot more reading was communal, partly because of the obstacles to getting your hands on a book, and partly because some people could not read for themselves. But also it was a really fun way to pass the time. So people spent quite a bit of... Time in Peeps's circle, discussing books, reading bits out, memorising bits and quoting them to each other. Sometimes in ways that seriously impressive. You know, kind of memorising quite complicated stories. Peeps gets a bit cross with his wife Elizabeth, who has memorised a part of a really fashionable romance, and starts to tell it in a coach with some friends. Which is a really, you know, she's it's a fashionable thing to do. She's understood what you're supposed to do as a gentleman, but she does it badly there's nothing to the purpose, not in any good manner. She's not done it right. She's intruded it into the conversation and is banging on. And here they have a fight about it. So, yeah, clearly there were ways. You know, People put effort into their reading and to, into memorising so they could entertain their friends, among other reasons. That's fascinating. Yes, but you
1: can't just do it just to show off, dear. You've got to find a way to do it naturally in the conversation. You mentioned earlier that whilst we've got his journal this gives us this remarkably detailed insight... Into what actually is only a fraction of his life, it's actually far from the only record of his survives. So, could you tell us about what else exists and what potential use
2: they are? I suppose to us as historians. So he was keeping a number of different kinds of records. A lot of them professional records. So we've got correspondence that he was writing as part of his Navy role. We've got family letters and letters between friends that go on throughout his life. Really helpfully, for my purposes, he kind of stockpiled a lot of papers that he never quite got around to sorting out, which have survived. And this includes things like shopping lists and sort of notes reflecting on various topics. So I was able to use those against his reading in the the diary, sometimes to tell what the diary was a better reflection of his reading, for example, than his library was. The books he chose to keep tell us not necessarily what he read, but what he wanted people to either be able to access or to think he read or that he thought that people should read. And it was helpful to be able to balance those two against each other. He was really very conscious about what he left behind him, and that included having spells burning things. He says this in his diary and he says it a number of times in his other correspondence that he's been getting rid of stuff that it would not be good for people to see. So, you know, who knows what that was. Now, let's have a think about the sort of things he was reading. We see this,
1: I don't know if this is right, I think we can see this sometimes as a kind of moralistic age. I wonder if we can learn something from Peeps about how books were read as self-help guides, so for improvement for the reader.
2: I was very keen on certain kinds of conduct manuals. So this was a kind of booming genre in the Restoration. One of the things they had that were a bit like self-help manuals. And you could get conduct manuals for all kinds of different stations of life, including being a female servant and including being a courtier. So when Pepys found himself in a position where he was, as the son of a tailor, having to move among gentlemen, we know that in the 1650s he got his hands on a work called Faber Fortunae, It is a version of one of Francis Bacon's works, which has kind of been packaged as a sort of essay. And Pepys finds this really helpful, gives him kind of counsel about how to conduct himself, about how to be careful about what he says around other people. He also gets his hands on another book, which he starts to memorise about how a gentleman should behave, called Advice to a Son. And since Pepys doesn't have a very genteel father, he refers to this author as My Father Osborne the man's name is Francis Osborne, when he writes about him in the diary. And that's helpful for making him think about what he needs in terms of how to present himself his clothing. You know, is it worth spending money on? The answer is usually yes. And so he's kind of learning manners or perhaps getting reassurance about what he's deciding to do anyway from these books. And as he gets higher up, he turns to books about courtiers, which are all about how tremendously backstabbing the court is. This kind of confirms him in some of his existing beliefs about he's entitled to behave a bit treacherously sometimes because that is what you do when you're at court. And so you can't trust people. You have to look out for yourself. And one of the things that seems to come up in his reading a lot is
1: history. And you talk about this as being one of the most prestigious categories of learning in this period. Was the study of history and of course, as historians, we can reflect on this gloatingly, perhaps. Was it thought to be sort of morally edifying or
2: good for the soul in certain ways, or is that to overstate it? For Peeps and I suspect for quite a lot of other people, it was not so much that it was morally edifying, but that it could be seen to be more morally edifying than some of the other things that they might be reading that were less entertaining. So history has the advantages of being really good stories, but it's also you can learn from it. And that might not be moral lessons, that might be practical lessons about conduct or how to manage yourself. So there's all sorts of ways in which people can find useful lessons in history, kind of models of behaviour or models of how to write. And Pepys is therefore much more comfortable reading history and spending money on that than he is on spending money on plays, which is often what he really wants to spend money on. He's a tremendous history buff. He wants to be a historian. And history combines the benefits of some of the things that he really, really, really likes reading but feels guilty about and the kind of worthy, respectable, learned things that you should be reading.
1: Tell us a bit more about the unrespectable, entertaining,
2: the things that he felt guilty about reading. So he mentions romances as something... He says, God forgive me, when he reads romances on a Sunday, by which he seems to mean sort of short stories, probably from... France or Spain. As you mentioned earlier, he is one of the very few people who tells us about his encounters with pornography. So he picked up a work called L'Ecole de Fille, The School for Girls, thinking that it was a work he might give to his wife to translate because she spoke French. So this was going to be something that, you know, would edify her, This School for Girls. The School for Girls, that wasn't what they were learning. I mean, it was a conversation between two women who were, how can I put it, exploring their sexuality and giving each other tips. And Pepys tells us in his diary, he went into the bookshop and he sort of picked this up, not realising what it was, then acquired it, spent some time reading it. I've, I think the quote is, that a man might do to inform himself of the villainies of the world. He also records getting an erection while he was reading it. So he wasn't just informing himself about the villainies of the world. And then, really interestingly, he says that he intends to burn it. He doesn't want it to stand amongst his books to his shame. So he is telling us about the lack of survival of these materials, because he doesn't want people to know he's been reading it, despite just writing about it in his diary, which he then chose to leave in his library. I suppose it was all in a certain amount of cipher or shorthand, so he thought that perhaps no one would actually know. Yeah, so he was writing his diary in shorthand, which wasn't that much of protection because shorthand manuals were readily available. Sometimes when he writes about sexual passages and increasingly, as he goes to the diary, he started writing in shorthand in French. And then he started writing in shorthand in a mixture of languages, so bits of Spanish and Latin and French. And then he started inserting random letters into the shorthand in multiple languages. So he still manages not to encode some of what he's saying in this way, but there were increasing efforts to prevent people from reading that kind of material. And I think that betrays an increasing sense as he went on that one day somebody else might read this, whether that was going to be historians, which he certainly kind of intended by the end of his life, or whether he was just worried that because he was rising at court, because he was facing increasing hostility as a result of his Navy role, somebody might get their hands on it and humiliate him. But it's so interesting. It clearly would have
1: stopped one of his servants reading it, but... Anyone who was educated in other languages, you know, Latin and French and Spanish, could easily
2: have made it out. So some of his servants, his clerks, could read his shorthand, but the diary was kept locked up. It's a delaying mechanism rather than... He could write ciphers, you know, he knew how to code. This was not a... did it in other circumstances. And certainly the language that he's writing in is sufficiently difficult that people today... I haven't actually translated it in any published edition. I had to go when I did a selection of the diary, and it was tricky. But also, yeah, it, it would hold you up. It's not going to completely disguise the material. If you want to go find some stuff to humiliate Samuel Pepys with, it's not going to be hard. But, yeah, it was a real obstacle.
1: Now, you mentioned that he had been thinking of giving that book to his wife, and you tell a story about Elizabeth Pepys reading Philip Sidney's Arcadia, which gives a wonderful insight into their marriage and into female reading and it, and also the ways in which even books of pleasure could be deployed for
2: moral uses. Do tell us it. Sidney's Arcadia was a romance, but it was respectable reading. It was kind of recommended as on side reading at some of the universities, the kind of thing that a gentleman should read. So when Elizabeth picks up Arcadia and decides to use it against her husband, she's using a genre that she's very familiar with, but also something that's got moral authority, you know, intellectual heft behind it. And the circumstances in which this happens are that they have had a fight. They had a fight about the servants before Christmas, which resulted in Pepys hitting his wife and blacking her eye. And this was awkward because she couldn't go out and he felt bad about it. There's then signs, and we've only got Pepys' sort of account of this, that Elizabeth is thinking this over and she says that she's not going out during Christmas. She stays home and, I think, parties with the servants more vigorously than usual. And then Pepys goes out shortly after Christmas and on a day in which he has been out all the time and has incidentally seen one of his sexual partners, comes back and finds that Elizabeth has got her hands on the Arcadia and something she's very familiar with and makes him read out a section on husbands being jealous and the damage this can do. And the damage that jealous husbands do is, according to Sydney in at least a couple of places, drive their wives to think about fornication and adultery in a way their wives hadn't previously entertained, puts ideas in their heads. And Peep says she maliciously caused him to read it and that it stuck in his stomach to do so, but he sort of made a good fist of it. It looks like what Elizabeth did was go to the back of one of the more recent editions of Arcadia where there is, I'm not sure it's in the back, it might be in the front, and there's an index anyway, under which there is jealousy. And this can direct you to various bits. So it, it sounds like she might have been using Arcadia as a kind of self-help book for dealing with a difficult husband in a way that he had no comeback to. You know, she won that round and it wasn't that long afterwards that she was out and about again, having a uh, sort of I think, previously threatened that she would continue to stay in. Again, she seems to be trying to work out how far Pepys was kind of prepared to endorse her being solitary, what he would have to say to that, the idea being that he would object. So, yeah, she won. Well done, Elizabeth. Absolutely. Using her
1: scholarship to give an answer to this violent and philandering husband of hers. Now, you mentioned that his library survives, and this is amazing and wonderful, and you say in the book that there are 2,971 volumes but that that is different from the number of titles and you have tackled the thorny issue which it seems that previous authors have sidestepped of just how many titles there are and that number is not the same as the number of volumes so can you tell us first of all how many titles you think there are and then what this disparity between volumes and titles tells us about
2: the sort of reading materials that existed at the time and the sort that peeps collected yeah, so I cannot remember off the top of my head how many titles there are, but there are many more than are in the volumes. And that is partly because Peeps is collecting a lot of pamphlets, a lot of plays and a lot of ballads. So it's something like 4,060, something like that. And in some sense, this tells us where Peeps's priorities were, that he was prepared to collect, unusually, a lot of this kind of ephemera he saw as valuable. And it gives us a kind of way to think about him against some other collectors who are not so keen on plays or on pamphlets and ballads. Or sermons is another thing that Pepys collects. He often tells us that he's collecting, or he sometimes tells us that he's collecting these as kind of historical records. So there's a note in his copy of the collection of ballads that this is really about, I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it's to do with we can kind of understand the people of the time through their ballads. So he's marking this as not something that I actually read for fun, but something that I expect you to use wisely and for learned purposes, which is quite a good way of covering the fact that we know he does read them for fun, because he tells us in the diary. And it also tells us something
1: about things like binding that turns out expectations on their heads. Books are clearly not always bought pre-bound
2: because you've got that 4,000-odd titles bound into about 3,000 volumes. Pepys was increasingly keen, as we see this developing the diary, in getting his work bound ale- elegantly. So he, what we have in his library are lots of works that have been bound to his style in different ways, including a lot of that ephemera. I mean, in some aspects we don't always know exactly how people were purchasing, what format they were purchasing their works in. So things like pamphlets would almost certainly have been purchased without bindings by most people. You'd have just had them stab stitched together. It's possible that other kinds of slightly more weighty books might have been trade bound. So in other words, you could walk up to a bookshop and buy them new, possibly in their new covers. But for a whole range of publications, if you were buying them, you might also have been arranging to have them bound either from the person who was selling you would arrange it for you or you would, and you would come back, which is what peeps often did, or you would buy it in sheets and take it somewhere else. So people who were keen on their libraries had interesting decisions to make and uh, could get quite obsessive about having their books gilded and this kind of thing.
1: Does this really just tell us about the extent of his wealth later in his life? Because it seems like a
2: really large library f- for this period. Yeah, it was a a substantial library by the time of his death and he had taken steps to kind of (laughs) moderate his desire to buy books, took vows or decided that he wasn't going to go beyond a certain number of bookcases, which, no pun intended, tends to go to the wall quite rapidly, that he ended up with many more bookcases than he intended. But yes, he had a lot of money. He could afford to spend on books and he chose to spend a lot of his surplus time and his surplus money, increasingly as he got older, on this collection, especially once he was out of office and had more time on his hands. It was kind of source of solace and status and uh, pleasure for him. I want to end by
1: thinking about the motto that you say is on many of Pepys's book plates, the Cicero's line, what a man's mind is, that is what he is. And you quote Justin Champion, the great late... Justin Champion also on access to a man's library being a means of getting inside his head. Although, of course, we all own books that we haven't read or what would we read next? But this access to Peeps's library and to his reading habits has told you about Peeps the man, what was inside his head. What do you feel that it's revealed to you that you wouldn't have otherwise known?
2: It's given me, because we've been able to balance the the library and the other papers against the diary, I think it's given me a much broader sense of Pepys than we just get from the diary. And with that comes a sense of what all his friends and his connections are doing. So one of the things that was really valuable for me is that Pepys's library, like his reading habits, is social. It's almost never just about him sitting in a room reading it's always about, even if he's sitting in a room reading, it's he's doing it so he can take that information out and use it somehow or show it to somebody. And a lot of the time he's reading with friends or he's exchanging books. So it's a way into thinking about Restoration Society that you can do through one person and sort of tell a story that's hopefully interesting, but also you're finding about so many other different people along the way in unexpected tangents and kind of illuminating bits of... Society and people's lives that I would never have looked at if I hadn't been following Peeps and his rather strange reading habits. And and what a wonderful insight it is as well. And
1: we are so lucky, aren't we, that he wrote that diary and that he kept all that material. And that although he may be atypical, we have access into the world of this individual in such depth and everybody would have had an inner life as rich as his, even if they wouldn't have been reading as much as him. But it's a phenomenal example
2: of what you can have as a historian if those records are kept. I mean, just from Pepys's diary, there are so many kind of flashes of other people's stories, you know, what his brother was getting up to, people sort of having their own dramas. I quite often think I would love to read that person's diary. You know, I'd love to know exactly what was going through their head when Peep's giving us one version, and very clearly there's a whole other story here of which he's only aware of the edges. So it's great that we've got his detailed, lively, fascinating account, and one of the reasons it's great is because he gives us so many flashes of other people's lives too.
1: Well, for those who would like to learn more, they should look out for a copy of your book from OUP, which is called Samuel Peep's and His Books, Reading News Gathering and Sociability 1660 to 1703. Dr. Loveman, thank you so much for your time. This has been really fascinating. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Not Just the Tudors. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. It seems about time, frankly, that you got a chance to speak to us too. So we have belatedly launched a Twitter account, which is at NotJustTudors. Please write to me on there and say what you would like to hear podcasts about. Or if Twitter is not your thing, we also have an email address, which is NotJustTheTudors at HistoryHit.com.
0: When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do.